Welcome to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life Church's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. This is message number 11 of the series, From the Book of James, with speaker Pastor Steve Benninger entitled, Real Faith Uses Wealth to Bless Others, from James 5, 1 through 6. You can find the sermon outline for this message at enewlife.com. You know, there are some Christians who are a little bit more intense than the rest of us. They got a prophetic streak in them. Brothers and sisters who feel very strongly about certain things, and they believe the Lord has shown them some things that other people need to know. And uh, they can only be quiet for so long before they have to bust out and share what God has put on their heart, usually without much of a filter. Um, so they're kind of like John the Baptist in that regard. And, and like John, their strong words can get them into trouble sometimes. You know anybody like that? Okay. Well, I think James, the brother of our Lord and Savior Jesus, had some of that in him. Yes, he was a pastor. He could be tender and gentle when he needed to be. But he also had some Isaiah in him, some Elijah And certain things he heard about, certain situations got him fired up, and he could get right in people's faces and speak strongly to them and call them out. And uh, that might have been what got him killed, by the way, just as kind of a historical sidebar. There was a fourth century pastor named Eusebius, and Eusebius wrote a a fascinating history of the church up until um, his point in, in time. And he recorded that James met his end in 62 AD, and here's how it happened. As the Passover feast was drawing near in Jerusalem that year, the Pharisees, remember them? Pharisees were growing more uh, more and more concerned, more and more bothered about the rapid spread of this new Christian faith, and particularly what bothered them was the reports they were hearing that more and more leaders were believing in Jesus Christ and following him. Because they knew James, because he was so highly regarded and widely regarded for his holy life and his pious life, and maybe also because they knew he grew up with Jesus, they came up with this, what they thought was a brilliant plan, to have James speak to the teeming masses that day. And so they found a perch, kind of a platform, uh, way up high near the pinnacle of the temple there in Jerusalem, and they said, you're going to talk from there to all the people. And their intent was for James to convince the crowd that Jesus was just a mere human, a mere man, and their hope was that it would put a damper then on this new movement. Well, James played along for a bit, but when he was actually handed the microphone, in a figure of speaking, as prophet types like to do, he blew up their plan. He got up on that porch and he looked down at the people and he said this, Why do you ask me about Jesus, the Son of Man? He sits in heaven at the right hand of the great power, and he will soon come on the clouds of heaven. And the crowd went wild. (laughs) The people started shouting and applauding. They started shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. But the Pharisees, as you can imagine, were horrified by all of this. Their plan had backfired. They rushed up the stairs, and in anger, they shoved James off that ledge. He hit the ground with a thud. Amazingly, he survived that. He was still alive. In fact, he started praying very loudly, I beg of you, Lord God, 
Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that made him even more mad. And uh, they started to pick up stones then to stone him. And finally, a fellow pulled out a club, a wooden club, and he smashed James in the head and killed him instantly with one blow. Prophet types are not afraid to speak the truth, even if it costs them. They can be hard-nosed and abrasive. They can be in your face. That can get them into trouble. We've seen that side of James, I think, as we've studied his letter over the past 10 weeks. He's been ruthless in his denunciation of sin. He's been passionate in warning us about God's judgment that is coming. And he's been very bold in calling people to repentance. He's pulled no punches. And now here in chapter 5, he is ready to unleash a, a prophetic diatribe against a new group that he'd heard about and the things they were up to. They were some wealthy farmers. And so let me listen as I read beginning in verse 1. It's like he's channeling his inner Elijah here, okay? Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. And their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages that you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. Such a sweet man. Such a nice, cuddly teddy bear pastor. Not so much here. Truth is, he's standing up for his brothers and sisters who were being beaten down and oppressed by these wealthy farmers. And he wants to strengthen his brothers to endure it with patience. We'll see more about that next weekend. But I see a theme starting to emerge here in this section, and it's going to become even more obvious. Do you see it? It's the return of the Lord. It's the imminent return of the Lord, that same Jesus who said, I'm going to come back one day, will return, could be at any time. And James says when he comes, he's going to come as a judge, and he's going to condemn these people with their lavish lifestyles and their harsh treatment of other people, which betrayed the fact that they didn't really know Christ. Jesus is going to mete out a severe justice upon the wicked. In verse 3, it says that these people's rusty gold is going to testify against them. In verse 5, he refers to Judgment Day as the day of slaughter. Later on, we're going to see in verse 9, it's almost like he's looking up in the air and he says the judge is standing at the door. So Jesus, the judge, is coming back. And if that frightens you a little bit, I want you to know that when Christ does come, he's going to vindicate his people. He's going to bless and reward his people, his true people, whose faith was real and genuine. But for those people whose, whose so-called faith never showed up in how they lived, James says they better be beware because severe torment, unending torment and judgment awaits them if they don't repent before he comes back. Here, it's clear he's talking about people who love money, who worship riches and wealth and the, the power that money brings. And James' message is direct and it's severe. It's a warning in verse 1. He basically is saying the, the wicked wealthy should weep. They should weep and wail. 
It's a warning. We know there's a lot of warnings in the Bible, aren't there, about riches and money and wealth. We also know that money is not evil in itself. Money is not bad in and of itself, but it is dangerous. You could think of money kind of like fire. Is fire good or bad? Well, it depends on how you use it, right? (laughs) Sometimes it's bad. But you know what? If you want to cook s'mores in the backyard on a fall night and you want those marshmallows to melt, fire is good. If you want to warm up in the cold, a fire can warm you up, but it can also burn your house down or ravage an entire forest. So it's how you use it that determines whether it's beneficial or whether it's destructive. And the same is true for money. Same is true for money. Now, we've noted that that James was the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. He heard Jesus teach a lot, and some of that teaching stuck with him. Like this one from Matthew 6, 19. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus said those words, and I think they stuck with James. Consider these words from the Apostle Paul. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. To a young pastor, he wrote this, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You see, money is not evil. It's loving money that's evil. It's being devoted in your heart to money. It's serving money. It's putting your hope in money that is evil. And Jesus said that his chief rival for people's love and the affections of their heart Surprisingly, it's not Satan, but it's money. And sadly, many choose money over Jesus. That's what these rich farmers were doing, and James calls them on it. He says, they better wake up. <laughs> wake up to the fact that Jesus knows what's in your heart. Jesus sees your ways. And James, like a prophet, calls them to weep and wail because of the misery that they are going to face at the final judgment. He basically tells them, if you don't repent, you're going to hell. Now, why? I mean, what were they doing that was so wrong, so evil? What was in their lifestyle that gave evidence that their faith wasn't real? They were lost and on their way to hell. And he mentions four things, and I've listed them on your study guide there. James says that their judgment is is warranted, it's deserved because of four things. Their greedy hoarding, their cruel and shameful injustice, their unrestrained self-indulgence, and their violent oppression of the weak. Let's see what he says about each of these things. First, their hoarding. How many of you have ever watched that show, Hoarders? Seen it? Yeah, I watched it, I think, twice, and each time I had to go take a shower. It's like, ugh, nasty, nasty stuff. 
Well, these wealthy landowners had plenty of land, plenty of money, plenty of grain, clothing, plenty of possessions. They had way more than they and their family needed. But instead of thinking, how would the Lord want me to use my excess to bless other people? Their mindset was all about stashing it away for whom? For themselves. Does that sound familiar? To me, that sounds a lot like the parable that Jesus told once. We call it the parable of the rich fool. It's recorded in Luke 12. Remember that? Where that fat cat farmer who was blessed with yet another bumper crop year decided not to spread his abundance around to bless other people. No. What did he do? He, he chose to tear down his current storage units and build right in their place bigger ones to store up all of his grain. While doing so, he said to himself, buddy, you're set for life now. You're good. You can take it easy. You can have one long, continuous party from here on out for the rest of your days because your future is safe and secure. But right in the middle of all of his smugness, the Lord comes along and ruined it, right? He said, you fool. This very night, your soul will be required of you. Then whose will all these things be that you have stored up for yourself? You see, God knows the hearts of those who can't see past themselves or stingy towards others, and they think that having millions of dollars all locked up somewhere will insulate them from hardship. I like James here. He, he, he like the prophets of old, he uses some imagery, very vivid, vivid imagery to get his point across. He declares that these farmers, their mountains of grain are now rotted. It's like, go in your silos, check it out. There's maggots in there. It's rotten. It's gross. And all those clothes, all those designer clothes you have hanging up in all of your wardrobes, they got holes in them now. They're moth-eaten now. You can't even wear them. And all of your stashes of gold and silver, which were not pure in those days, but mixed with alloy, he says, look at them. They're rusting. They're oxidizing. And the rust is actually going to rise up and speak against you on judgment day. That image of rust, corrosion, testifying against them, and then it says eating their flesh like fire is James' way of painting a picture of the fiery judgment that's going to devour these guys on account of their greedy hoarding. Then, he contends that their judgment is also deserved because of how they got their wealth, how they acquired it. Verse 4 reveals that these farmers, these greedy farmers, had underpaid their employees. They had withheld a fair wage from those laborers that they had hired to go out and harvest their grain fields. That would have been not only unfair, but also cruel, because those workers, those day laborers, needed their daily pay just to live, just to feed their families. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, the Jewish law forbade landowners from doing this, from withholding wages. That didn't matter much to these guys. All they cared about was filling up their own barns, their own bellies, and their own bank accounts. This was robbery, basically. Larceny. And again, using very fanciful imagery, James says, those unpaid wages will join up with the rust to bring a chorus of testimony against those wicked men when they stand before Christ to give account of their lives. Then James points to their luxurious lifestyle, their opulent lifestyle as additional cause for incurring the wrath of God one day. He says, look, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence, verse 5. 
You've lived in luxury and self-indulgence. Again, that sounds familiar to me. That sounds like another parable that Jesus told once. Let me read it for you. There was a rich man who was dressed up in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side and he called out to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, I guess when you're 2,500 years old, you can call anyone son. Son, remember that in your lifetime, you received good things, while Lazarus received, Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Jesus was saying here what? There's a reckoning coming. There's a day of retribution coming. There's a leveling of the playing field coming. Justice will be served. Those whose lives on earth were lived for this life only, storing up treasure for themselves to just spoil themselves, on that day are going to be afflicted with unending torment and misery. But those who treasure Christ Jesus above everything else in this life, who may have possessed very little, but faithfully used it, to honor God and bless others, when they cross over to the other side, these folks will be blessed with abundance and with comfort. So James, I think, is just echoing his brother in telling these luxury-loving people that all of their gorging of themselves with delicacies, feeding their appetites, is actually just fattening them up for the day of slaughter. In fact, judgment was often depicted that way in the Old Testament, like a fattened calf being led to be butchered. And James doesn't do much to soften that language. It was a gruesome, bloody affair. And then in verse 6, James kind of nails the coffin shut with his final charge. He says, look, you've got, you've got loads of money, you've got wealth, you've got influence, you've got power, and instead of using it to advocate for the weak and the poor, what are you doing? You're taking them to court. You're using your influence to trump up false charges against these people that you know are not going to stick, and you're taking them to court? He even says, James does, you're having innocent people murdered. Some see here kind of a subtle allusion to Jesus, who was also an innocent victim of wealthy people who trumped up charges against him that weren't true, just to try to get him out of the way. James says, you murdered the innocent who were not opposing you. I got to thinking about that. Murdering innocent people. In our day, isn't it true that legalized abortion is an example of this very thing? So-called doctors going into the womb and dismembering babies for what? For what? Money? This is horrific. This is, this is heinous evil. This is a national holocaust, is it not? 
murdering innocent little babies who are not able to speak for themselves? That's why others need to speak up for them. And I'm grateful for the people here in this church family who feel this, who feel this passion, this burden to get in the battle, to join the fight against these doctors who do things like this to pad their own bank accounts. These folks in our congregation who also come alongside pregnant women and help them understand there's another option than abortion. There's motherhood. There's adoption. I mean, my goodness, people are lining up by the thousands to adopt little children in our day trying to help them take a different course. I think the Lord sees that. I believe he's pleased with our efforts in this regard. This is wicked stuff. Oppressing, murdering innocent people. We've seen James hammer away a lot of evils in his letter here, but we can see some of his harshest language is reserved for those who use money to oppress and abuse other people instead of blessing them. Well, I want to take the remainder of our time and and basically preach a second sermon, all right? I promise this one will be short. Um, He said, yeah, (laughs) short sermons, yay for short sermons. What I want to do is I want to make a particular application to families, okay, from, from what we've heard in James 5 today. I think it's obvious that, that how God's people think about and handle money and wealth and riches is very important to the Lord. Don't you get that impression? It matters to Him. Did you know a study was done recently that said our culture sends us about 360 messages a day on average talking to us about money and wealth and the things that money can buy and how we can only be happy if we have this or this or this or this. 360 messages a day bombarding us, saying to us, how can you be content if you don't have this or buy this? Many of those messages are aimed at us, but an increasing amount are aimed at our children and our grandchildren. Are these messages true? And beyond that, are we and our children sufficiently armed with God's wisdom, with God's perspective, so that we can recognize deception and lies coming at us from our culture and fend them off? Or will we succumb to the seductions of our age and make money our God and find our security and possessions? As we know, the Lord entrusts parents with the primary responsibility for discipling their children. Isn't that true? Parents, and especially dads. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Because that's the case, our leadership team here is trying to get better at equipping parents to disciple their children in the ways of Christ. And towards that end, I want to take my remaining time and give you seven scriptural principles for how to view and handle money God's way. And my hope is that you're going to find a time to sit down with your son or daughter later on today or maybe even this evening and talk about this. I hope you will. You say, well, I'm not a parent. Well, these apply to you as well. And as is the case with many, as I've seen through the years, many of your parents didn't pass these on to you. And as a result, your life has been 
hampered because of that. But I want you to know it's not too late to turn it around. So I don't have time to go into depth. I, I, I hope that you'll take these and dig even deeper. But here's how the Lord wants us to think about and handle wealth. And I didn't number them because I didn't want you to think that these were in sequence. Like first I'll do number one and then I'll do number two and then I'll do the third one. They're not sequential necessarily, although the first one is foundational, and that's to acknowledge God's ownership. Like God owns it all. Now, he thinks he does. Do you know that? (laughs) The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Why? Because he made it. He made it and he owns it. Haggai 2.8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. God owns it all, and the... Some of you are thinking, well, wait a second, I work hard for my income. Come on. Then you need to read Deuteronomy 8.17. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands has produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Whether you use your hands to earn your income or your mind or both, where do those abilities come from? God. The very fact that your heart continues to beat and your brain waves continue to function and your motor skills and motor functions continue to work is due to God's mercy in your life. It all belongs to God. You'll take a great step in your spiritual maturity when you take all of your stuff and all of your accounts and all of your money and you transfer ownership from self to God and say, Lord, it's yours. I'm just a manager. I'm just a steward here. All this is on loan to me for a few years on this earth and one day I will give account to you because you're the owner. Parents, teach your children that God owns it all, that he's that big. By your words and by your example, help your children to grow up thinking God made everything, so he owns everything. Everything I have belongs not to me but to God. That's essential for a foundation of a life lived in the truth of the gospel. God owns it all. Here's a second one. Prioritize the Lord and his work. Read this with me from Proverbs 3.9. Would you read it out loud with me? Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. So parents, teach your children to honor God by giving back to him the first part of everything they earn, starting with their allowance when they're very young. Now we know that the New Testament does not stipulate an amount or a percentage that we are to give. And some people ask me, well, Pastor Steve, what, how much am I supposed to give? Many Christian parents use the Old Testament standard of the tithe as a starting point, 10%. And I don't think that's a bad idea. That's what my parents taught me. The first 10%, Steve, belongs to God. Right off the top, you get a dollar of allowance, the first dime goes back to God to honor Him, the first fruits. Help your kids understand this. Help them understand that God's work of spreading the gospel through his church is the most important work in the world because it has eternal ramifications. The Lord is pleased when his children honor him by making a priority of giving to his work. And again, our example as parents probably speaks louder, right, than our words on this. One man said, what you do speaks so loud I can't hear what you're saying. There's truth to that. Here's another important priority for thinking about wealth, and that's to take care of your family. 
1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Proverbs 13.22, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Some of you are sitting here and you're single. You're saying, I, you know, I'm single. How does this apply to me? And it is true, God calls some people to a life of singleness and to devote all of their time and affection and energy to the Lord and to His work. But for many young men and women, God's plan for them is for them to be married and have children. Our culture is not as high on that as it once was, but in God's mind, it's still a noble thing. And I think planting that vision in the mind of your young son or your young daughter, hey, honey, you're going to be married one day probably, and God's going to give you, you know, a husband or a wife, and, and He's likely to give you children. I think that's a good and healthy thing to plan into the minds of our, our kids, and it should also include a vision for working hard to provide for that family that God is going to provide you one day. That's God's plan for how children are nurtured and taken care of as they grow up. And again, I think they'll pick that up best by your example as, as dad and mom. Another priority financially is to do good to God's family. Do good to God's family. Galatians 6.10. Read, read this one out loud too with me. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So apparently, blessing God's people with generosity is something that's close to the heart of God. I don't think it's wrong to let your kids know about times that you or you and your spouse, you know, have given away something to bless somebody else. Now, you know, don't be all arrogant about it. Like, you know, we're awesome, you know. There's the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and we're right up there in that same aura. You know, not that. But let them know. Yeah, you're trying to be anonymous and not let the left hand know what the right hand's doing, but, but we always made a practice of letting our kids know. Otherwise, they wouldn't know that this is in our lives, that this is a value with us, and we wanted them to catch that and embrace that value. Doing good to God's people, to his family. How about this next one? Pay what you owe. Pay what you owe, Romans 13, 7. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. You see, is that in the Bible? Yeah, right there. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Listen, parents, please, 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 please. For the sake of your children, teach them about the perils of going into debt. Teach them that the borrower is servant to the lender, as it says in Proverbs. Teach them the wisdom of that. If they take it to heart, you might just have saved them a decade's worth of stress and anxiety and being buried under a mountain of debt. But that's the American way, isn't it? To go into debt for what we want. Next, save for the future. Save. For the future. Wait a second, Pastor Steve, you just talked about hoarding. Hold on. Proverbs 6 6, go to the ant, you sluggard. (laughs) What? Be schooled by the ant? Yep. Be tutored by the colony of ants. Let them speak to you, consider its ways, and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer, or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. It stores up for what's coming. 
Proverbs 21.20, In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. I get this picture of this guy. Ah, you know, everything that comes in goes down the hatch. There's no saving, no storing up. That's foolish. So there's hoarding and there's saving. And they're different. Hoarding is evil. Saving is just being wise. The Proverbs say, the wise man sees what's coming and prepares for it. Do you see what's coming financially? Do you see what is coming financially in our country? Do you see it? Are you preparing for it so that you can take care of your family? There's a little starter plan that many parents have used to teach their children how to handle money. It's called the 10-20-70 plan. Have you heard of that? 10-20-70. I was taught this. Steve, the first 10% goes to God. That's how you honor the Lord. We just give it right back to the Lord. Right off the top, the first fruits. 20% goes in the piggy bank for savings or a savings account of some sort or an envelope or a Dixie cup or something, a jar, a mason jar. 10 to the Lord, 20 savings, and then we live off of 70% for our needs, our, our daily expenses. 10, 20, 70 plan. You say, is that in the Bible? Nope. No, but it's just a solid, common-sense way of thinking about money. And many Christian parents, adults, still use that plan to this day as they think about the income that God is providing for them. So save. Then finally, invest in eternity. And this is not number seven, as in the seventh in sequence. This, This is huge. Lay up, Jesus said, for yourselves, what? Treasure in heaven. Invest in things that will last forever. In another place, he says, be rich towards God. Do that many ways. A couple I'll mention. One is blessing the poor. Blessing the poor. You can read those scriptures there. As our children grew up, I was looking yesterday at my refrigerator, and we've had the picture of a sponsored child up on our refrigerator for decades. If you ask my children, who is Valya Davlatova? They would say, well, that's the little girl in Russia that we've help support with our $35 a month for years and years and years. And then in more recent years, we added Masha Klukina to that. And her picture's on our refrigerator. And we we put that on there because we wanted our children to realize, oh, mom and dad care about more than just us and our stuff. They are taking note of people on the other side of the world who don't have nearly what we have and are blessing them. We wanted them to understand that. Our hope is that they'll embrace that same value as, as well, right? He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. We invest in eternity and we lay up treasure by blessing those who are under-resourced or less privileged than we are. You know, we here in this room are some of the wealthiest people in the world. Did you know that? On a global standard, we're like off the charts. How How do I use my money in a way that would please God? Bless the poor, and then leverage your income for relational evangelism. Listen to what Jesus said, Luke 16, 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, the wealth, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. 
Oh my. In other words, use your money to build relationships to the point where people can hear the good news and believe it and be saved and go to heaven forever. Take them out to eat. eat. Buy their meal at Chipotle's. Meet them for coffee. Pick up the tab. Use money to build relationships, friendships that will turn redemptive as the Spirit opens the door for spiritual conversations that lead to Jesus, because for Christians, all conversations lead to Jesus. Let me say that again. For Christians, all conversations can and should lead to Jesus. Whether you start with the Cleveland Browns or... Amen. <laughs> that conversation needs to lead to Jesus. <laughs> they need to come to Jesus. Listen, when we teach our kids to give 10% of their allowance to the Lord through his church, we need to help them understand that helps people come to know Jesus. People here in our community where we live, through the ministry of our church, the many ministries, and people on the other side of the world through the missionaries that we support over there. What could be better than knowing that your financial giving helped people get saved? There's nothing better than that. Help, help your kids realize that when they get to heaven, look, if we're faithful and being generous here, when we get to heaven, there's going to be people there who will come up to you, throw their arms around you, and say, thank you, thank you for giving. Because through your giving, God worked to get the gospel to me, and I believed it, and we're going to get to spend eternity together forever. Man, that's good. That's the vision we need to pass on to the next generation. People would be saved forever because they heard the good news of Jesus coming to this earth, living a perfect life, dying for our sins in our place, as the song, the lyrics said that we sang moments ago, and then rising from the grave. And now he's in heaven listening for all who will call on his name, right? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People hear that message because people are commissioned and sent. And that's why we give. So, I hope that helps and gives you parents some ideas. I hope that you will take these and talk with your children about them. And my two sermons are now done. But I have a twofold challenge for you. And I want to see a, a raising of hands for which of these two ways the Lord has spoken to your heart about today. The first challenge is this. Let your saving faith show itself through how you use your money. How many of you are saying, that's how God's talking to me today. I need to let my faith be expressed in how I use my wealth and my riches and my income. Okay? Many of you, many, many of you, say yes to God and whatever he's saying to you. How about this one? Get intentional or get more intentional about helping your children learn God's way of handling money. How about you, for parents? Most of us could get more intentional, right? More deliberate about this. If we do, our children can experience the joy of doing it God's way and not be snookered by the world, which is so deceptive. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for wisdom from God. Oh, Lord, help us who are parents to instill these, inculcate these values into the lives of our children, Lord. Our efforts are feeble sometimes. We need you to help us know how to talk to our kids about these things in a way that's 
winsome and makes sense and it just has the ring of truth to it. And Lord, for we here in this room, I pray that we would not worship money, that we would not make the primary aim of our lives to earn as much money as we can and live in luxury. Lord, that we would see ourselves as managers, as stewards of what you've entrusted to us and we'd use it for eternal purposes so that you might be seen to be the glorious Lord that you are. We worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's word and seek to know him better through the gospel. Our prayer is that the gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.